welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Good morning. So I thought um, I was going to preach from the chariot, but after seeing what happened with Luke, I am going to stay right here, and I think I'll be much safer. Um, I just want to know by a show of hands, how many people here enjoy looking at art? Good. Okay, I'm glad. So I want you to imagine that you're looking at art, and you are in um, the Louvre. You're visiting the Louvre in Paris, and you are looking at a piece of art, and you're taking it in, right? You're seeing emotions and colors and textures, and inevitably, when you're in a crowd looking at a piece, a beautiful piece of art, there is this wow that someone says out loud. And so somebody will, in the crowd with you, you hear them say, wow. And you think, oh, we're on the same page. We're taking in the same beauty, the same wonder that is this masterpiece. But then the person says, wow, look at this frame. Do you see this frame? It's strong and it's intricate and it's just made with good material. And you realize they're not impressed at all by the painting created by this artist. They're impressed by a frame. And I think it must be people who are just easily impressed in general would be impressed by a frame. But I sometimes think it mirrors also our Christian walk. When, when we have faith in Jesus, sometimes we just get stuck at this frame. We think of right ideas and right mission statements or what it looks like on the outside to be a follower of Jesus. But we neglect to fill the frame with the work of the creator through us. When I was in high school, there was a volunteer leader who was in the military. And I don't remember his name. We just called him Major. I'm not, I guess that's his title. But um, I remember one youth group he was speaking, and he showed a picture of himself on a missions trip. And he was a middle-aged white guy. And so the picture is him in a group of African men. And they're all dressed in their traditional outfits. And he went on to say that that night they spent the entire night just dancing and laughing. And he said he was lost the entire time because he didn't know the dance moves, but he had never experienced that much joy before. And underneath that picture was the quote, and he said, live your life in such a way that would not make sense if Jesus didn't exist. And I took that quote, and it really stuck with me. And so I took it to college, and I thought, I'm going to put that on my dorm room wall. That'll be really cool. And so I decided to put up the words in the shape of a picture frame. And I spent a lot of time with each letter sticking it on the wall, making it look symmetrical. And my intention was to put those words up, and then throughout the year, I would fill in the middle with pictures and maps um, and memories that I'd made. But I never did. My entire freshman year, those words just remained as a frame with a big empty space in the middle. I had taken time crafting what sounded like a really great idea, but I never had anything to show for it. I never had anything to fill it with. Let's not let our call to be witnesses, to live differently for our neighbors, simply just be an empty picture frame, a nice idea with really nothing to show for it. This morning, we're going to look at the practices of the early church as a reminder that as individual believers and collectively as the church, we're called to combine the spiritual and material needs of our communities in order to carry out God-given ministry. God's ministry through us should fill our frames of our lives with people and experiences, ministry of caring for others that all in the end point to our creator. We are one body and one church, 
with one mission to make disciples and grow Christ-like followers of Jesus. Yet within that body, we each have a unique call and unique gifts. Let's lean into those, and together we'll labor towards our vision as a church and as a believers worldwide. So beginning in Acts 2, we see that the author of Acts, Luke, is giving us these little snapshots of what the early church was about, what they looked like. We see baptisms in Acts 2. We see fellowship. They're breaking bread. They're seeing more and more people come to know Jesus. And then in Acts 4, we see that they had one heart and one mind, and everything was in common. Everything was laid at the apostles' feet and used for the greater good of their community. We even see Barnabas who sells his property and gives that money to be used for the whole community. And so we think of this when we think of an ideal church. Everyone should just get along. Everyone should share everything, and everything will be perfect. These two early illustrations of the church, Luke is giving us a sense of what God can do and will do by his spirit, but also what he'll do through the work of us, through the work of the apostles and the church. These depictions of the church as unified set the stage for what we'll look at this morning in Acts 6, that as the gospel advances, we have to be mindful of its effects in its community. So would you open up to Acts 6? It's on page 914 in one of your pew Bibles, or if you have an app on your phone. What we'll look at this morning also continues with that ideal church model, emphasizing prayer and proclaiming God's word, but never to the exclusion of helping the poor and of correcting injustices. Would you join me in prayer? Holy Spirit, your presence is already here. Lord, we don't have to call you to begin working. God, you work in our lives sometimes when we don't even see it. We pray intentionally this morning, God, that your word would be a lamp unto our feet that it would guide us, Lord, that we would surrender to hear you and see you anew this morning. Lord, would you be glorified and magnified in this place. Amen. So we'll start in verse 1 of Acts 6. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So the frame of this ideal church that we've already seen now has a problem with the picture in it. We see that the Hellenist Christians, who are the Greek-speaking Christians and are the minority in this group of Hebraic Christians, which are the Jewish Christians who make up the majority, they have differences, right? Differences in culture and language and how they probably view their call and their mission in the world. And we see that now those differences are being exacerbated by the fact that the Greek Christian widows are being neglected from aid, Within the Jewish system, there was already uh, a way for people to get food and supplies if they were in need. They took that mandate to care for widows seriously because widows in that culture meant that you had nobody, no family, no friends. You were reliant on the church. So in mirroring the Jewish system, the early Christians modeled this too, and we see that in Acts 2 and Acts 4, that they had spiritual unity, and it demonstrated through communal sharing of possessions and charitable acts towards people who were in need. However, this number of widows became too large for the amount of support they had to care for them. So continuing in verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, 
whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So when I read this, I was curious about that last phrase in verse two. It says, to serve the tables, which means to feed the hungry. So the apostles saw there was this need, and they recognized that something should be done about it, that it wasn't something to be ignored. But they also knew that they weren't necessarily the ones to fill that need, because their call was to preach the word of God. And at face value, when I first read this, I was, fresh, I was a little frustrated. I was a little irritated that it sounded like they were saying that their responsibility and their call was above that of feeding the poor. No one should be above helping the poor or helping widows. And that's true. But I realized that that attitude that came about in me was just coming from a place of wanting everything to be equal, of not recognizing that different people have different gifts used at different times. And in order for God's work to roll out in the world more effectively and more efficiently, all kinds of leaders have to live in to their gifts. And that may mean that people use their gifts in different seasons at different times. I work in student ministries here at the church, and so when I have a new volunteer that wants to help or one of our interns that comes for the summer, I usually start by having them start just by showing up. All I ask is that they show up and that they observe. I don't put them up front running a game or leading a lesson. I want them to observe from behind the scenes. And inevitably, at the end of every summer, when I sit down with our interns and I review the summer, what they liked, what they didn't like, get feedback, almost always they say they grew the most and they learned the most behind the scenes when they were running houseboats behind the scenes or Hume Lake or how to run a good event. Those are the unseen and unheard places, yet those places are just as valuable. And I am so grateful for interns that are willing to learn in that way. So maybe they'll be called just to serve behind the scenes. And then maybe God will propel them to the front and propel them to teach and share their faith with others in a public way. Or maybe not. I don't know. God is the master designer. He is the master planner of our gifts and how we will use them. And sometimes we have to, not sometimes, actually all the time, we have to yield to how he wants to use those gifts and when he wants to use those gifts. The apostles recognized that in this time their gift was to honor God and the church by praying and proclaiming the word. So they tended to the spiritual needs of their community and they tasked the Greek-speaking Christians to select seven men to do this new responsibility. And just a side note is that the seven who are selected in this text, they're only later identified as what we call deacons. So it's interesting that in the New Testament ministry, to care for widows, to care for orphans, and to care for the poor, that calling came long before there was an official office. So often we want a title or a position to be made for us so we can feel secure. When the ministry of caring for others, of praying, of proclaiming God's word can be done just as effectively without that. Not everyone is meant to do everything, but everyone is supposed to do something. That's really the heart of what I'm wanting to convey today, is that not everyone gets and is meant to do everything, but everyone is supposed to do something. The Christian experience, what we see in Acts 6, is that it intertwines the spiritual and the material so intimately that one will inevitably affect the other, for better or for worse. 
And as we looked at in part one of this series a couple weeks ago, there are two types of ministers. There is the gifted evangelist and the evangelistic believer. And if you're not in a gifted evangelist, that doesn't mean you're off the hook for being God's witness in the world. An evangelistic believer is just as valuable. Generally, people find themselves in one of these two camps, but there may be a season, and I believe that there probably will be a season where you will be called out of one type of ministry and into another, even if it's only for that one conversation that God has put that person in your life for. Let's keep reading in verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So why lay hands? That part stuck out to me when I first read this text. I remember I was with someone from Texas, and this is nothing against anyone from Texas. My mom's from Texas, so don't take it personally. But I remember saying something, and I guess it was a little naive, and she just touched my elbow, and she's like, oh, bless you, honey. And she like laid her hand on me, and I, I thought, that's weird. Well, this is not that kind of like blessing or laying hands of in any sense, right? The, the apostles are commissioning. They're giving a certain kind of empowerment that the laying of hands communicates in the church. They were delegating their authority to now these seven who were going to go out and bless those in their community and outside of it. And then we see that verse 7 ends with this idyllic picture again of what the early church was like, telling the reader that God's word was growing and more people were coming to faith. And even, it says, even the Jewish priests, even though the priests were the least likely people that others thought would come to faith in Jesus. And to me, this is a reminder that the gospel can reach the furthest places. It can reach people who practice another religion, who are atheists, or like Father, Father June, Michael June's story. It can reach the places of the people who are persecuting you. That's how far the gospel can reach. And we see that churches are growing as we heard from him. So this narrative will sum it up in Acts 6. It begins with people who notice begins with people who notice a need, and they go to the leaders, and they go and say, this is a need we see that's relevant. And instead of the leaders saying, ah, that's not really our calling, we're not going to do that, they equip, and they still see it's valuable. And so they equip and instruct the community to be sent out to then go to those that are in need. And in this case, it's the widows. This is what filled the picture frame for the early church. It wasn't just this kumbaya unity They were strategic in witnessing to all people, recognizing that in order to reach all people, both spiritual and material needs had to be met. So this morning we've examined scripture and we've examined a little bit of our lives, and so I want to propose three suggestions for how we, as individual believers and as a church, might begin to fill our own frames. In Acts 1, verse 8, Jesus commissions all of us, and he says, But you will receive my power... Receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Sumeria, and to the ends of the earth. The early church, they took this call very seriously. The entire book of Acts, the history of the early church, is about being a witness. It's about sharing the good news of what they had experienced with the rest of the world. 
we as a community here at Carmel Press, but also as a body of Christ and as the big C church, we are called to preach the gospel. Whether you see yourself as a gifted evangelist or an evangelistic believer, we all preach the gospel together as a community, as the church, in essentially three ways. And so the first is through gospel living. We preach the gospel through this idea of gospel living. In fact, in in most of the New Testament, the letters that are written to the various gatherings across the Roman Empire, the dominant theme is not Paul instructing people specifically how to share the gospel as a gifted evangelist, because it's not only verbally that we share the gospel with others. If it was, he would have just written a very simple step. Step one, point out they're a sinner. Step two, they need a savior. Step three, step four, and made it very clear. But that's not what we get from scripture. What it means to be and live a gospel-centered life is that as the first Christians in the early churches were told, live your life in a way that demands a gospel explanation, or as we've been calling it in this series, live questionable lives. And as Luke read earlier in Ephesians 4, I'll put it up again, and I'll read it one more time. It says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. We are called and we are chosen by God, and if we really believe that, if we really believe the good news in our lives and our response to our lives and how we live our lives will look different, we will be humble and gentle We will be patient, and we will bear with one another in love. And I'm sure you recognize that these are not always the qualities we see in the world or even in Christians in the world. Those are different qualities. The gospel communities that we form should be witnesses of the power of the gospel in our lives. We're not called alone. We're called in a community with many parts as the church. So the gospel is a living, physical embodiment of preaching the good news. As we read about in Acts 6, that is gospel living. Not just stopping at preaching the word, but gathering together for the purpose of gospel living in order to reach out to those in need. You saw a little bit of the VBS skit or um, video. And at VBS, they were in groups called oikos groups. And oikos means uh, household of God. And so they were basically, the kids were broken up with a couple leaders to eat and play and learn about God together. It would have been chaos if they were just all on their own. It was helpful, not only for the leaders, but also practically so that they could learn from one another about God. And so these little VBS groups, that's just one example I saw this week of gospel living. Because it's impossible to bear with one another in love as deeply as we're called to in scripture if we're not in spiritual households and in spiritual relationships with one another. And not only are these small groups important for reaching inward, as we talked about last week, reaching brothers and sisters in Christ, but without these groups, the rest of the things we'll talk about this morning become obsolete. If we as the church are to live the gospel in a way that the world notices, the way that the Roman Empire noticed these Christian communities, then we have to be faithful to live the gospel together. Now, we could stop here. We could say gospel living is enough. That sums up the gospel. And many people stop there. Right? They become so good at just loving each other inwardly that they never venture outside of that. But, but, they forget that we're called not just to feel blessed ourselves 
And we're not just blessed for our own sake, but in order to be a blessing to others. So the second way we live the gospel is through gospel proclamation. We together as a community must proclaim. We must speak and tell people about the gospel. Despite any fear or anxiety, we are called to tell others with our words about what we've witnessed and what we know to be true about Jesus. And right now, some of you might be getting a bit uncomfortable because you're wondering, how questionable is she going to ask me to be? But here's the truth, is telling others about what you've witnessed in your life is simply just being honest about who you are and being honest about the hope that you have for your life. That's it. We as the church, we're called to preach the kingdom of God. That's what Luke 9 says as Jesus is giving instructions to send out his disciples. He says, when Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. They didn't go town to town and never say anything. They didn't gather in Jerusalem and just never invite anybody in or never go out and talk to anybody about the hope that they have. They told people with sincerity and conviction about the good news that we have in Jesus. But they didn't go with words alone. So the third step is gospel demonstration. Wherever they went, it says that they preached the kingdom of God. They spoke about a new kingdom, a new reality. And they demonstrated that through their actions, not just amongst themselves in their oikos groups, gospel living, but they demonstrated it to people who might come to believe. So back in Luke 9, we get another instruction. It says, Jesus gave them power and authority to do what? To drive out all demons and cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and then to do what? To heal the sick. The gospel has an outward component woven into it to see God's kingdom come. We desire to see the sick healed, the poor uplifted, the homeless housed, the oppressed set free, We desire to see values of humility and service and love being implemented in our community and in our world, not only for those within our church, but outside of our church. And so we pray in the Lord's Prayer. We pray for God's kingdom to come, but we also recognize that we ourselves must act and be used and empowered by God to bring God's kingdom here. On a Christian backpacking trip, the leader was going around in a circle, and he asked everybody, what's one experience you hope you pass on to your kids or to the world. And this was college age, so 18 to 21. Uh, Nobody had kids, but you could imagine their responses of dreaming of a future. What might they want their kids to know, to be kind, to be loving? Um, And this answer from one of the students, the leader said, would always stick with him. This college student said he hoped his future kids and ultimately the world would encounter Christ in such a way that it would demand a response. Church, we are a part of helping others encounter Christ in such a way that demands a response. And it happens through these three habits. This is the way of being a difference maker, to live questionable lives through how you do gospel living, gospel proclamation, and gospel demonstration. Combining the spiritual and material in order to carry out God-given ministry to be a witness in the world. When I look at this picture frame for this church, I see something different. I see people who live questionable lives, especially with their time. I see someone like Ben Pallone, who goes on houseboats with our students. Or I see a a Sam Phillips, who goes and builds a house in Mexico with our high schoolers. And I make a point to tell our kids, this isn't normal. It's not normal that an adult would give up time with their family to spend time in Mexico or on a houseboat for a week with teenagers. That's not... (laughs) 
It's not normal. I don't know if they get it, but <laughs> as adults, you might understand. That's not typical. That's unique. And I also see people like the orchards who faithfully make sure that the toiletries given at the church are, get to Ark in the Park for the homeless. And those are just a few of the many examples I know of you guys who are filling your frames of faith. So what about you as an individual, though? How do you fill your frame? Or are you thinking right now, maybe people just see the frame. Maybe nobody sees the picture. So in the first week of this series, um, we had Luke introduce this acronym that's going to help us live our mission statement out. And so it's BELLS, but it stands for Bless, Eat, Listen, Learn, and Scent. And these ideas help us live practically into our mission statement as a church. So I want you to think, where are you already spending your time? Where are you already spending your treasures every week? And that's where we're going to start. So an example might be if you're already going grocery shopping or if you're already baking cookies, pick up something extra or bake a second batch and be that unforeseen blessing to your neighbor who maybe you've never even talked to and surprise them in that way. Or if you have a friend, I know I have many, that I always say, yeah, we should totally get together, call me sometime, but no one ever does, right? Think of that person that you see regularly, write their name down right now even, and call them and actually text them to get together? Or are you lacking an oikos group, a small group, a spiritual relationship or household to gather in? Notice other people around you that might also be lacking that and try and create just an hour of your week to meet with them. When we start in these everyday places, we begin slowly to reorient our lives towards being difference makers for God's kingdom. Our challenge this morning is to step forward into God-given relationship and ministry that combines the spiritual and the material needs of your world in order to begin to fill the frame that is our faith. Would you join me in prayer? God, you have given us a frame, Lord, and even if we are struggling to put that frame together of what our faith in you looks like, I pray first for those people, God, that your Holy Spirit would speak to them, that you love them, God, that you desire to be in relationship with them. Lord, and for those who are looking at their frame and they wonder if there's anything in there, God, I pray that you would bring to mind the names of people to bless, Lord, the people, uh, their neighbors, people they see every day, every week. God, put a burden on our hearts to pray for these people first and foremost. And give us creative ways to reach out to these people. Holy Spirit, you are our guide. You lead us, Lord. And so I pray that we would be led by you and surrender to your ministry, whatever that may look like in whatever season we are in. And Lord, we pray for our offering. God, as we give you what we have, we know that we only have the things in our lives because you have given us to them. So we turn and surrender them to you, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.